already. I feel like me and you, Jordan, have prefaced this Dune podcast for like forever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like probably for like almost three weeks at this point. And it's finally here. I'm just so excited to dive in because we've all watched it, what, two times now at this point? Uh, yeah, two. So yeah. we've clearly beaten it to death. Not nearly enough, but... <laughs> I could easily watch it a third time and still be just as intrigued. I think it's the best movie that I've seen in a long time. I think I, I actually can't think of the, the movie like that that I've seen. Like that kind of science fiction. There's anything that Christopher Nolan makes is fantastic. Obviously, Denis Villeneuve is good because he made a Blade Runner, Blade Runner right? That Which was great. Yeah. And this is in keeping with it. I think the visuals yes. are equally stunning. I th- so just after watching the for the first time, Jordan, you'd sent me or told me about the Beyond the Screenplay podcast. Mm-hmm. And they went really into detail about Denny Villeneuve and his like basically directing career and like the style of film he likes to do. And what they were saying is basically this is like his like top of his form or master of his craft in the sci-fi genre that he likes to do. And so I wound up re-watching the Blade Runner and you see a lot of the same actors he's casted from Blade Runner appearing in the Dune part one, which is really interesting because yeah, it just who is, who is both who's in both. I think he who casted Dave Bautista. He also casted one of the like- Harkonnen guys with, he looked like the advisor dude with the bald head. Oh yeah. Yeah. I forget his name. I forget the actor's name, yeah, but he was he in recognized uh, the dark Knight. Yes. Yeah. And there's a couple other people that, are just recognizable as like extras and stuff like that. But it really shows the like level of detail to like really like fine tune the details of the world. Like all the world building stuff was like really hammered home. And I guess we could probably talk about this separately in more detail, but just also the music part of this kind of really pulls it all together into a cohesive, I guess it's it's more of an experience, right? It gets, it really acts like the glue bringing everything together. Yeah. And it's just this pounding, like primordial sound constantly. Just these huge drums, just bum, 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 bum. Like bringing you deeper and deeper into every fucking moment. It's unbelievable. We should also just clarify this too. Does anyone know anything about Dune going into this? Um, No. Only that it was influential in the sci-fi world, but that's about it. Yeah, I, I had hadn't a, read the book. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. I think at some point I had ended up watching part of the 84 Dune. It was like on Netflix or maybe Amazon. I don't remember where it was, but I watched wow. maybe 45 minutes of it and then fell asleep and did it just it's just it shows its age like really bad <laughs> because it came in 84. And so they had no computer graphics at the time and yeah. they tried to do a lot of really like first time things that just look real jank in modern. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine how you could have made a movie like that back then to do it well, to do it proper. You, you almost need to be able to have this kind of huge like sci-fi. Genie. Yeah, there was, a, there was some like controversy or whatever with the director at the time. I forget who it was. It's the name's on the tip of my tongue, but whoever yeah. was like supposed to make that movie, I think he stepped away before it was finished. Oh, um, really? Wow. Oh. I wasn't aware of that prominent director his, his name is i it's like i have it but I, it's not coming to i can picture his face i know what he looks like he has the yeah, white hair that's all i don't know why, i don't know why i'm blanking on his name but yeah, um david, david lynch. lynch yep there it is yeah he's super famous or was super famous at, at that period of time yeah and he makes a bunch of movies that are strange and yeah like that yeah but interesting you can tell it was just like it was so ambitious to try to tackle and it was just like 
it was just early. It also laid the foundation, I think, for someone else, however many years later, to come back and say, oh, I, I see what we can do or what we did, but like now let's just turn it up. 20 yep. times 20, you know what I mean? Or even yeah. more. And a quick thing about the casting, there's a hilarious part I noticed. So Javier Bardem, who plays the leader of the Fremen, mm-hmm. and then Josh Brolin, who yeah. played, I forget the character's name, but he's like one of the lieutenants. Yeah, the generals, um, right? In, in that knife fight scene. Yeah. So those two characters are both in No Country for Old Men. Agnes Javier Bardem is whatever his name is, the bad guy. And there's Shakir, a Anton Shakir. Something yeah, like yeah. That. And there's a line where Javier's character first meets them, and when he leaves, Josh Brolin goes, I don't like him. And I'm like, ah, I think they were being funny. But yeah, just like to the casting, I feel like they did a really good job. And at first you'd see these like huge ensemble casts of these A-list huge actors. And a lot of times they don't work out. Yeah. Uh, it's because they're a celebrity like over does the film or whatever. It's yeah. just too much. But I feel like they really nailed it in this one. I felt the same way. It's like you had these incredible actors, but I never felt like there's at no point did I feel Maybe a little bit with Josh Brolin and and what's his name from Game of Thrones? Oh, uh, Jason Momoa. And Jason Momoa. I felt a little bit like I was watching an actor and not watching a character, but it was only a couple moments. But I definitely never felt like it, the movie was ever overtaken by celebrity yeah. in the least, in, in part because of the grandiosity of the whole story. It's just how could you? What kind of celebrity would you be? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think a lot of the people who were part of this were really just fans of the source material or knew about the source material to a point that they were like, yeah, I just want to make this to like to be something that's awesome. Because yeah. this is one of the things that they brought up in the Beyond the Screenplay podcast of some of these scenes, if you gave them to like even a B-list actor, they would have just become off as milk toast, I guess. The whole fight scene of what's the point of that fight scene with Josh Brolin and Timothy Chalamet. And that's really to show you how the shield works. And if you were to give that to some actor who can't sell that action and the intensity of it, then all of a sudden that scene gets really insignificant really fast. It was purely exposition for sure, but it's, it's fun to watch. Yeah, that's, exactly. Yeah. They made it work. I was like, oh, that's really tight. So exactly. They make it work and you have these good actors. And I feel like in sci-fi in general, it can be cheesy. Some of the things they say and talk about is just like, that could be corny if it wasn't as good at talented of actors as they had. Some of the dialogue, I think Josh Brolin, when he's talking about the Harkonnen, he's like, they're brutal. And it's just, if it was anybody else, it didn't work. But for him, I was like, you feel that, like the pain and stuff like that. I was like, he doesn't have many lines in the film, but I feel like when he said what he said, it was like, to me at least, it was very like intentional and pointed. Yeah. And it helps you fill in gaps too, because all you've seen about the Harkonnen up to that point is like some monologuing with the... Uh, planet Arrakis and showing them saying that these people are obscenely wealthy and they, you know, controlled the spice mines, but then they got it taken away from them. And so you don't really know anything. All you saw is like some of the sand, the people of Dune fighting them or killing them like stealth ambushes. But you have no like lay of the land of who's good, who's bad. You have an idea that the Harkonnen might be bad, but like you get it in the architecture. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, of their ships and everything. That's where it's, it, this is why the design of that film is so unbelievable. I don't know who the artists were, like the con- concept artists, but they have these ships that almost feel prickly. Like oh, that's a good way to black, describe it. Like hovering nightmares. <laughs> oh yeah. I was like, that's exactly the thing that yeah. they just got the imagery down. House of Trades has a slick, these almost like monoliths that happen to be floating in the sky. I, I would say maybe there's a brutalism architecture to some of the like building design. 
because everything is yeah it, de it depends on where you're at it's, it's funny because there's it's not exactly brutalism because brutalism was just so boring yeah but more there's this kind of Egyptian yeah. or Sumerian like monuments on the world with the Fremen that they had built. And so it feels very much like it belongs in the desert. And then you have this kind of grandiose steel sort of uh, very Apollonian lines mm -hmm. with the House of Atreides. The little statue of the bull yep. uh, is <clears throat> even that is minimalized and made into slick lines that wouldn't be there in nature. Everything is we have an intention. It's it's purposeful. It's everything is moving in a certain direction and we're doing these things intentionally where the, the Harkonnen, everything is, it's like, it's thorns in nature. Every, there's no straight lines unless it's like in a, what feels like a crypt or, and then it's all mucky and black and covered in shadow and obscured, just like their intentions are obscured and everything is obscured. <laughs> They're very much the darkness in nature. Wow. And this kind of frenzy of what like this I mean, corruption underneath the flesh kind of thing. And Whereas the House of Atreides is they have they in the lore hail from Spain and everything is grand and yeah. bravado and we can do this. And, I, it's like, even more interesting too because the way you're introduced to the leader of the Harkonnen is through a scene where the leader is obscured by mist. He's like sitting in a shower and you don't even see him really because because it's symbolism for his psychology. Yeah. <laughs> it's all yeah. lies, it's all covered up. He's all uh, overabundance and decadence, just like nature's the Venus of Willendorf, which is like this really old totem that's like over 10,000 years old. It's like considered one of the oldest art pieces, but it's not an art piece exactly. It's more like a thing of worship, and it's just this little idol, maybe a handful of inches high, and it's just this really fat lady, really fat. And the calling her a Venus was a, like a play on words, like they're joking about it, but it Paleo thinks that it came from the same kind of line. Is it was like, here is what we're interested in, here's what we're worshiping, right? It's a religious totem of what they're worshiping, and it's a sign of abundance from a time of great scarcity. And it's sexualized, which is not surprising, but it's also it remains sexualized because if you look in, at if you, men who are poor and are hungry prefer women with bigger breasts. So the, the desire for abundance in a moment of scarcity remains something that's projected on to women. And so in this totem, it's that projection. But all in all, it's a representation of mother nature in abundance, right? Because it, there are no lines. Everything is overflowing. And you have that same sort of overflowing, gluttonous, like hurling, disgusting amount of decadence that exists in the Harkonnen. It's the same sort of spirit. It's all just too muchness. Too much violence, too much food, too much body mass, too much too everything. much everything. Yeah. And they're all bald, though, which is really interesting. Like of all character traits that, that these people have, they're all bald. <laughs> I think it's dehumanizing, I think, is the point. Is that you make mm. in the same way that you show up to boot camp and they shave your head to remove uh, you of your individuality. Okay. It's that same thing. They're lost in the identitylessness of their society. Because your humanity means nothing. You're part of a collective. There's some like behind the scenes stuff on HBO that was really cool. I watched yesterday about the makeup and the costumes. And it's really dope for bringing this up because they treat it as a character almost. Mm. It takes on a life of its own, but then it like just completes the whole. But it's not treated as, oh, this person would probably wear this and like more of an afterthought. It's like really intentional. So Joe, I think you're spot on. Mm. Um, like with the, the Harkonnen's costumes, they wanted it to look like 
they said they was inspired by like bugs. They have no eyebrows and like they're all bald and stuff like that. And that was just like reinforcing that idea of this, this, you know, this disgusting thing that like revolts you when you look at it in a way. And I think that direction really, like we were saying before, all the, they introduce all these people in probably what, seven minutes, <laughs> the first seven minutes in the, of the movie, you meet all these people. And one of the ways you can tell, I don't, they're probably the bad guys. It's just how they look. You don't really need mm-hmm. to know who they are. Really. You can look at them and be like, I probably shouldn't like them. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. Usually black is a good giveaway. When they, when anything is wearing black, you're okay. They're probably the bad guys. Right. Cause it's darkness is a representation of nighttime and chaos. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, here we are. And we talked about this a lot in the C podcast too, but like those attention to details make everything feel more immersive, which I think is one of the things I enjoy about this movie the most is because it's truly immersive into this yeah. like world that is so distant and just unrecognizable in a sense. Really. Yeah. You feel like you're there, but the, the music takes on a life of its own and it's so unique. I don't know if I've seen, heard a score like this at all, ever. <laughs> I don't know if anyone could duplicate that. It's just so, it's Dune. It just feels. Like- I would say two things too. The, I think when it comes to sci-fi or even fantasy, cause this is kind of a weird blend. It's a sci fantasy in my mind. And I think the hardest thing to do, especially when you translate some to to a film, is establishing the world very quickly. And I think just with the way they show House Atreides allows you to get this feel for this is a living, breathing world that has thousands of years of history that now you're just coming into it. And because the main character was Timothy Chalamet, who I can't remember his what is it, Paul? Is his name? Paul, you're, you're coming into it as like his coming of age story. And so you kind of are able to learn through his eyes as him being a beginner and figure out his place in the world. But you can still you still get this sense of like you're almost like beat over the head with tradition. Like the first interaction he has after a dream is with his mother to use this voice thing, which is really unsettling to have as like a like within the first five minutes of the movie. <laughs> But you really get this, like... Yeah, the sound design of that alone. Was yeah. And so one of the behind the scenes of that, like the way they decided to do the voice is they did so much of this, like, previs work and have ideas of how to do stuff, but they didn't really fine tune it until, like, in post-production. But they had an idea. They didn't just say, oh, yeah, we'll fix it in post. They, like, had versions of it, worked it, reworked it, and then came up with it. And the way the voice works is... It's the voices of the person's ancestors commanding someone to do something. So that's why it sounds really unsettling. You get voices from all different ages telling someone to do something. And so that's why it works so well. Hmm. Yeah, that's that is symbolically rich. <laughs> that, there's a whole lot there. <laughs> that's like I, I the women in this whole story. I think that the great mother as a archetype is lurking behind the scenes. The entire that's the movie. Bene Gesserit people. Yeah, yeah, they're the representation there for sure. Always behind the scenes, always doing things. It's they're the ones that are in control, despite the kind of machinations of these of different the houses. <laughs> and it's so close to the archetypes it's unbelievable to me that you nailed these things it's it's really cool i found like the scene where he puts his hand in the box like the test to see if he's strong enough basically and like that whole scene of if it wasn't given like his like facial expressions were so genuine looking that scene could have been just wouldn't hit as well as it did and also the i don't know who the actress was who played the bene Gesserit woman but she also played that really well like just the authority figure in that situation and then the mother like who's barely even holding it together on the other side of the room but even as that scene ends and they're walking to their ship again 
there's so much of this contempt of you were only supposed to have daughters and yet you thought you were better than us or better than the plan or whatever. Like you get all this like subtle. Oh, she's brutal <laughs> character. It's she's like a total oof. overbearing matriarch, just absolutely in control of every situation that she's in. Yeah. Yeah, I love her character and their dynamics there. But real quick on that scene with the hand in the boxing. Yeah. During the trailers, I, I was thinking, I was like, I hope that scene isn't boring or done incorrectly. Because there's when you see it, there's not really much going on. You have essentially three characters. Two of them are together. One of them doesn't say much. The other one just has to act in his face. It's all facial, facial movements. And then his mom's standing outside of the room. She's reacting to what she can feel, I guess. It feels like she can really feel what yeah, he's there, under. There's some sort of like intuitive pain thing happening. But I feel like that scene, that might be my favorite scene in the movie. One of them, one of them. Because I don't know, you just, it's, you instantly feel that stress and like tension of what this guy's going to go through. They set it up perfectly, by the way. But like when he's in there, he's like, what's in the box and pain. In two seconds, you get a sense of every character in that scene. It's like, he steps into the room. She immediately uses the voice on him and just crushingly. And you're just like drawn like a specter right to her. And then he, in reaction to the immense power that she has, immediately is fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and it shows the kind of character that he is, that he's this kid. He goes, how dare you do that? And he's saying this to someone like that. Who's that masterful? Right? So when <laughs> she says he is later to to his mom, like he has defiance in the eyes, just like his father. You actually believe it because he just did that shit. <laughs> he's like, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you do this to me? So it's and then you get the mom, the the sense that she caught between two worlds mm -hmm. because here's her son that she doesn't want to offer up to this painful experience. But here's the obligation that she has to so this tradition she's a part of. And so she's caught and torn in half. So she like can't leave the door side, but she can't go in either. And she's just going to sit there and be miserable. <laughs> this and whole thing hear, is going the, on. hear the anguish in her own son. Or hear him screaming in pain. Which could mean he's dying. He may well die. And she presumably knows that. <laughs> and yet she offers him up anyway. So in that way, she's actually a, a bit of a Madonna figure. She's Mother Mary holding the body of Christ. She's mm. willing to offer up her only son or maybe not only son, but this son to the world for the sake of its saving in some sense. That's why I say this is more of a fantasy story because there's so much religious symbolism. It's pretty crazy. I love it. I think it's a, I think it so far, I think it's a meta modern work. Mm. It's like where it's like, ah, this was, it's willing to, and from my understanding, you told me this, I, I haven't looked into it, but uh, Frank Herbert wrote it. Yeah. Frank Herbert was influenced by Jung. So he, it's a he willingness. Took to peyote is one of the stories. No, really? Yeah. yeah. All it shows. <laughs> he, he, he did peyote and he was a influenced by Alan Watts version of Zen, which, okay. is, which yeah. shows in the Fremen. Uh, yeah. And he also was really interested in just blending like religions of the world and like taking the best of all of them together right. and say, in the future, we might all just figure it out. We'll just take the best of all of it and just figure out this collective consciousness thing. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating because it's all there. That's why I thought it was so good. I was like, oh my God, this guy ac either actually understood it or really got out of his way and allowed himself to express yeah. What was in some sense already there? Probably both. He was also incredibly like libertarian. He did not like big government, which. Huh, that's yeah. kind of. Well, that explains. Yeah. The, <laughs> I love that the Fremen or free man. Oh, excuse me. Right, has a as a definitive philosophy. But I want to get to that. But we'll it, get there. But we're still talking about the women who are uh, unbelievable. I like, find them really interesting. I think that they are. They, it, it is a matriarchal world that they're in, and they just, and some characters just don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Stefan and 
energy in this is crazy. And you get the idea that like, okay, the Harkonnen are probably not to be fucked with, but then the Benny Jester, you're like, I don't know. I feel like yeah. scene, seen the escape scene in general. I feel like that set the tone that like, oh, like there's an army of these people who could just talk people to doing whatever they want. And, kind of and we'll, we'll get there too, where she actually uses the voice to as a weapon. Oh yeah. That is the, the, the mom. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm just going to say it now. If you really wanted to make force persuasion actually a thing, like this is how you make it actually a thing in a film. Yeah. <laughs> and even, even symbolically, they're as obscure as the Harkonnen is. Yeah. Like when they show up at night, it's in mist, all clothed in black, right at night. Secretly, he's brought there. Only the doctor knows. And it's everything is clouded in mystery, everything, because in Mm -hmm. some sense, she's the master of the night. She's always behind the scenes doing something, always in darkness, always in the real puppet masters. Should we talk about the father? I can't remember his name. Oscar Isaac's character. Yeah, Oscar Isaac's character. Hold the cast on the, yeah, so we can see the names here. Um, Quickly about the names, too, before we go. Weren't those, like, strange choices to you? Like, Paul, and then I think the mom's name is Jessica. Yeah, they're very normal people names. Like even Duncan Idaho. Like that yeah, the, I, I like he's like a corn degree. person. I wonder what he was trying to invoke. I I think I don't want to say why I think his name is Paul because I'll say it after, but because I think it'll actually ruin where the story's going. But yeah, I did think they were normal. But you'd have names like last names like Atreides, right? This this is great grand name. It sounds very Greek, Greek. name, yeah. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, they're like the heirs to the great Western empires uh, of the world. And it feels that way. They have the bull and all that. Of course, symbolically in mythology, the bull is always sacrificed to the great mother. There's like there's always the great mother is sac- has her bull con whom she castrates and wow, that, that like pairing is yeah, and the, really uh, specific. the many ads, the Dionysian many ads followers of Dionysus would work themselves up into a frenzy. Like this actually happened. It's called sparagmos. It was a ritual where they would all get basically make themselves insane together and attack a living animal, often a bull. Sometimes, if you were, were poor, a sheep, and rip it apart with your bare hands and then eat its flesh raw. So you could picture. People doing that, like full on losing their fucking minds, diving on top of this huge animal and with their bare hands, breaking its limbs and ripping it everything to shreds and then eating its flesh. And it was all symbolic of this sort of like worship of nature's ability to dissolve everything. Dang. And it was like a subjugating of themselves and attempt to summon that spirit within them. That's frightening. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's they they probably did it to people too. They think that they was probably human sacrifice before that where they were ripping people apart. That's not surprising, <clears throat> honestly. And I think that's hailing from the same circuitry that chimps use to rip a, each other apart when they go on patrols to fight off mm. other groups of chimps. So it's a it's just one piece getting it gets more abstract. It's like chimp, people, oh well, we don't have to use people, bull. Uh, sheep or something, and then eventually it what it ends up being is Christ sacrifices himself to accomplish the same aim of something. So we no, uh, no longer need with reality. We no longer like need to stab each other. Yeah, and that kind of castration. They would like eunuch priests who would, would it, it goes off in a couple of directions. They would shave their heads, so you get something like the Harkonnen. Oh, and like Franciscan monks would shave the top of their head, and these are like abstract representations of what had been actual castration. So you'd have eunuch priests for the female goddesses, 
So the great mother goddess would castrate her male followers. And then in Judaism, it becomes circumcision. Oh, okay. so they don't do the whole thing. They just go, okay, we're good enough. But anyway, you, the Harkonnen in some sense are still eunuch priests of the great mother. And the bull character is still rendered ritualistically for the sake of the aims of the great mother. Wow. Because so all the mythological I, stuff is all there. It works too, because Paul is, is literally the symbol of the bull in, in this situation. Yeah. Right. His, <laughs> I think his dad is. Oh, and, you're, and that he's the Christ figure with the Madonna mother. That's really interesting. We'll talk about Leto because I think the scenes with Leto, because you don't get a whole bunch with him, but in the book, apparently you get a lot more exposition and you get- Which like, one is Leto is? The as, as Oscar Isaac's ah, character. Okay. And so his Oscar Isaac is just great. Leto, and, that's a deliberate name. That's a Greek, who, look, Google who Leto was. That's a Greek mythological character. I don't remember who that is. So Leto in Greek- Oh, look it, at that. Is the, a titan. The, look at that photo that pulled up. It's literally the Madonna. This one right here? Yeah, mother and child. That's even more specific. But it was, Leto was classical Greek mythology, a titan, the daughter of Chios, I don't know how to pronounce that, and Phoebe, and the mother of God Apollo and goddess Artemis. Oh, the chief places of her legend were Delos and Delphi, Leto pregnant by Zeus, sought a place of refuge to be delivered. And she went to Delphi, and that's when Hera, being pissed off that Zeus cheated, sent Python, the great she-dragon, later a snake, and that's where we get the word Python from, to Delphi to kill her. And then Apollo used his arrow to shoot in the eye and then cut it into pieces and then made a new temple at Delphi, where you have the Delphic Oracle. It was an oracle, I think, of Apollo. Since we're we're here doing research on naming... Decided to type in, oh, it's correct. That's interesting that he would name, maybe because he's, is he supposed to be a sort of a androgyne, like half like feminine, like he's certainly a caring father, but he does get this kind of sacrifice. That's a, he's a complex. That's interesting that he named him Leto, huh? I'd have to think more about that. So let's see. So they apparently this house Atreides is descendants from King Agamemnon. What's the mom's <laughs> name? The Jessica. Jessica. Oh. But nothing sticks yeah, out nothing, to me there. Right, me either. But Leto is a very interesting character to me because the scenes you would normally expect to be like commanding, it wind up being like tender. Like that scene where he's walking on the like cliffside with mm. the uh tombs of the ancestors. And it's called wants to go on the first expedition with Duncan Idaho rather than be here or stuck on the planet longer. And his dad, nope, you got to stay here with me because you got to learn how to do the job of ruling. And it's it's just winds up being this really different take on what you normally expect from these scenes, because you get this father who's, yeah, I wasn't I was like that, too, when I was your age. And you'll like grow into the role kind of thing. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting he's definitely the good father mm-hmm. he's, a, he's supposed to be a good father he's in some sense the opposite of house harkonnen's patriarch who is very much the terrible father this kind of <laughs> grotesque thing yeah because the dave bautista's character is he calls him uncle so you know that there's yeah. family relation there you don't see too much of that but it's yeah. still present there's family structure for both 
Yeah, that was uh, that was actually a really warm scene. I like how that played out. And what he said is specifically, I thought that was just a beautifully written line, but he is, it'll come, I, I'm going to butcher it. So I'm paraphrasing, but he's the time will come when you have to make a choice and, or when you have to answer the call. And if your answer is no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. And that's my son. And I'm like, Oh, just that. I think that moment right there set the stage one set the stage for kind of their family dynamics. I think that's the first time you see yeah. them too. But also, right when he said that, I'm like, oh, he's going to die. <laughs> I was like, that's going to happen. <laughs> but There goes Mufasa. Damn it. But yeah, Oscar, Oscar Isaac is brilliant. And I think this is the only role that he's done in this kind of manner. So, like, beforehand, I was curious about that casting. Like, Oscar Isaac being this father figure and seeing how that was going to work. And I, initially, I thought he was going to be brutal and like ruthless and this is your duty like that kind of thing so i like i guess in the original text and in, in the book that they flipped in he's like oh he's this warm caring person um, no in the book they give more like backstory like they do a lot more exposition that like formulate the character that you get a better sense of it but they still did it really well with what little they show of him is what i had read yeah and that's the task of a film right you, you don't have the luxury of 600 pages to get something across and be like, okay, you know who this person is in and out, what they're thinking, how they move. You're like, we have probably 10 minutes <laughs> to figure this out. Yeah. Everyone out from from what I heard, like the first 100 pages of Dune is just st- setting up for the story. It's not even story. Yeah. I, I heard it's, it's not the easiest book to get through. Not that yes. it's not entertaining, but it's, it's just, it's like you got to slog through the first 100 and then you're good. It's like those TV shows of, hey, watch the first six episodes, then it's good. Yeah, because they have to set up so much exposition. <laughs> you know, it, it's just exposition. I could, I couldn't imagine, especially with sci-fi and the kind of fantasy stuff. You have to build a world <laughs> like that in there. It's hard. It's very hard. Like you don't get to walk to the tavern until the dirt, like what the tavern is, the context around the tavern. You know I, I mean, mean, how many times have we failed trying to make a D&D group work because of all so the setup? <laughs> the coolest things I personally, I think about Dune is that the world is so interesting. And even though, again, I don't know much lore and stuff like that, but I'm like, I'm just enveloped in what this world is, even without yeah. knowing exactly everything that's going on. It's just interesting it's familiar enough but different enough i feel like a lot of people will and there are similarities but you compare it to like star wars and you like tatooine or something like yep. that in in that world but even still it, it feels completely different it feels dangerous and i think that's the best thing they did correctly is like that desert world is foreign it's alien and it's, it's dangerous you know what i mean like you can't it's not for the 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 um faint of heart yeah um, yeah, I think I think we could probably start talking about like the transition to a to Dune. So the like, I guess the first scene you get to see of Leto is with the transition of power where the emperor decrees. And the, this is the first like sign of fanfare where you have all these like royal dignitaries and stuff there. And like, I thought that scene was just cool because you just get to get, feel the weight of the uh, cultural heritage of the different people. Where like when they say House of Trades accepts and then the entire group chants Atreides over and over. I don't know. It just feels so cool. It feels <clears throat> grandiose. Yeah. You know, in a good way. It's very like magnificent. Yeah. Everything is designed to be like magnificent. proud. Yeah. In yeah. a way that yeah, 
I don't think you see in film much at all uh, besides the kind of flashy Marvel stuff. Yeah. But it's a very different character. I also would say too, that this film kept its serious face on the whole way through a, a lot of what like Marvel does. And, and we, me and you, Jordan, we talk shit to Marvel so much lately, but <laughs> right there. But yeah, <laughs> but what they do is they'll go really serious for a whole bunch. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, we got to throw a joke in so people can laugh. I, th- it's, I think it's be it and that shit looks to me like they're not willing to be vulnerable. Like they're scared of being too sincere. Hmm. And so they go, Oh, well, we're just kidding. Yeah. I, I think that's part of it. But too, I think, did we talk about that yesterday? We must've talked about this yesterday, but I, the Disney structure, I think, and why Disney is so successful is that it's family oriented. Hmm. Any demo age demographic can go see any Marvel, any Disney film in general and enjoy it. Even the Pixar stuff, which that's a different thing, but anyone can find something to be enjoyable about. So if you have like civil war or Endgame or infinity, any of those, which are really dark stories, if you really strip it down, like young kids might get tuned out. They might be like, Oh, this is a little too dark. You know what I mean? So like throwing in those lighthearted moments can keep them engaged and say, I like Spider-Man. He's funny or stuff like that. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's also the business kind of peeking its head in uh, the business side of film. But what Dune clearly isn't necessarily for everyone. It's like <laughs> what it is. We're not cutting corners. Either you fuck with it or you don't. Pretty much. <laughs> and I like that. It's it's a very serious sci-fi, and that's why these things come off corny or like cheesy sometimes. But I'm like, but how serious it remained throughout the whole time. I don't know if there's like really there's maybe three jokes in the whole movie, and they're not like. You're not laughing. Yeah. You're, you're not just like quick little. I mean, like, it's Duncan Idaho making fun of Paul because he's like, "Oh, did you put on some muscle?" He's like, "Did I?" And he's like, "No, you didn't." And then that's yeah. it. It's over. That's all you get. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it's a dark story. You know what I mean? And to make it too lighthearted, I feel like would take out the immersion. But I feel like just it it has to feel what you have to feel the stakes throughout. Yeah. And it, it works. It makes everything heavy like it's supposed to be it's not funny when they all get annihilated right house of trades all dies it's if we were being all lighthearted about this and then that happens it's like you're robbing it of the gravity of the situation like he you don't want to i don't think who the screenwriters or frank herbert wanted this to be like hopeful <laughs> it's brutal <laughs> yeah i think you're right i think it is supposed to be this like really intense like how do you it's like weird it was i guess we don't really know where it's going like the way it ends like you get these whispers that paul is maybe this chosen one we already know that just from the the talk with the mother and the bezogenerate woman but we really don't know where it's going at this point because the way it ends but there's all of this kind of basically messiah-like figure that may or may not be arriving and it may or may not be Paul. And it depends on how he responds, which is just really fascinating that they, it's not that it's not overt, but it's just they. it just feels if this gets out of hand, the emperor loses everything. Yeah. yeah. And I think Joe, you mentioned this last time we, we hopped on discord. So I'll throw you the alley-oop and you can take it. But what's cool about that idea of the Messiah figure, whatever, what's the name that they call it. They have a phrase. It's like the one who comes from. Yeah. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, while you're looking it up being the one, it seemed like it was, it's a choice. Cause it's not like you are the one you're yeah. the dust, but it's like they're it's meticulous planning and they're trying to create this person. And then, 
Jessica took it upon herself and said, I think I can give this to the world. You know what I mean? So it's everything's lining up for Paul to be that person, but it's not definitive. It's like almost he has to still make choices and do the right thing and follow the path. I think they said, we we laid a path for you on the planet. Did you choose to take it? And I think that it was made evident by the sort of dream sequences, these visionary experiences that he had, where it showed multiple different potential futures. Like one of the characters that dies is seen seemingly and in an interaction with Paul that would have taken place after that instance. Like we're seeing a potential reality in which they had that kind of relationship. Or maybe it was before. I think that it might have even been before that. I think that he Paul has this as a dream and he tells uh, Duncan that he needs to go with him in the early parts of this thing. And everybody else says, no, it's not safe. I need you here, whatever. And he just goes along with it. And it could have been that going on that particular, making that choice, saying, being obstinate and saying, I'm going, <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. Uh, would have changed the destiny and how things worked out. But I think you see every choice of his, The op, it's, it's almost like he sees multiple futures and then whatever choice he makes will send him down one of them, but he doesn't have a definitive, this is the future. And so it seems like what he's doing is slowly making choices that will bring him closer to that particular destiny, this kind of the one destiny. And I would like to go back and look, but it almost looks to me like every time he has one of these visions, it's around a time when he has to make a very explicit decision, including like he has a vision about dying in that fight at the end of the movie. And that's right when uh, his mom was like, no, we need to get you off world. You have a choice. You stay here or you come with me off world. And then he makes the choice. Yeah. It's like, okay, here are your options. Right. And then he, then the choice arises and then he can go, I already know which way one of these is going to go. I'm going to make the decision. Yeah. And there's a part I want to mention. If we're going in order, I'll save it uh, until we get there. But there's, I feel like there's a lot there, but I think you're spot on with that. And I didn't notice that the first time I watched ones. I don't know if you did, but the first time I watched, I didn't even, I like forgot that they saw that character who was like a mentor. And then clearly that's not happening. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Like I, I saw it too, but it's almost weird because it's like he was still mentored by that person because of the vision in some sense. Yeah. And in a sense that, okay, hold on. We'll get there. I'll say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's uh, talk about the, we, we had, if we're in the chronological line that we've talked about, we went from talking about <laughs> the Bene Gesserit and that scene mm-hmm. to everywhere else. <laughs> yeah. Like we've bounced around, but we, I'm trying to keep it on track ish. <laughs> so we talked about the mother characters. I think, and we've talked about now the father characters. Let's get to the besides Dune. the the bad guy. We should talk about the because we have a sense of the good father. We don't have a sense of the bad father here. The Baron. Have we have we seen him yet? The Baron, besides the shower scene that we mentioned already, because you only you don't get a chance to really know him until after the takeover. So I'm trying I, to. I think that, so do you want to go chronologically in the story? Or yeah, I'm trying to go chronologically. I'm trying to go chronologically by yep. the story. Yep. So I think we can start talking about what we see Arrakis slash Dune like with the landing of House Atreides. Um, and then we can get to the the takeover and then we can elaborate on the terrible father. Yeah. It, it, and yes, <laughs> we can. <laughs> I, think, I think that's the best way to do it because then we'll circle back to what Jordan has to say about the visions and the end of the film. 
Say, so save your thoughts. If you need yeah, to write think, things down, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> We've hit enough things that are constant throughout the film, like the visions, like yeah. the play yeah. of these grand behind the scenes matriarchal figures, the different paternal figures, good or bad. And then the Freeman seem to be somewhere stuck in the center there. Yeah, with for Paul. sure. So I think that with that, so the way they like set up the landing on Arrakis was so cool. I thought they really nailed like the arrival and, and normally with arrivals too, at least in shows, it's normally the bad guys arriving. So this is the first time you ever get to see what is it like when you have a noble like leadership arriving at a place and you even get that within a couple of minutes of the way Leto introduces himself to the people. He's I'm not going to be here persecuting you guys. I was here on a task to harvest this spice, but I'm not here to oppress you, which is Again, so counter to all the rest of the narratives that we've been given up until this point. And even so, I think the way you even get like that weird, like the normal response happens when they bring in that leader of the Freeman. Yeah. I forget his name. He was, or he might've been a captain of some kind. Yeah. But like the way he says hi is he spits on the table <laughs> and, and it's like giving moisture in a desert planet makes sense. That if there's anything that's like valuable for you to do, spitting seems like a very bad idea. But they take that immediately as an uh, insult. insult. Oh. Right. And so the Josh Brolin's character is immediately, yo, I'm about to take this guy out. Just say the word. <laughs> and he's like, no. Like, <laughs> like we're not here to start wars <laughs> and i just thought it was this it was just a cool way to introduce the two cultures you have two very different cultures two very different climates on top of that which comes through in their interaction and just showing like how to diffuse the tension so that you're not repeating the sins of the past yeah yeah and so what that part what i like there is when Javier Bardem's character, I forget his name. When he's speaking, he's basically saying, what does he say? He's like, people come, you people come here and you take what you want. And you give us nothing. You take our spice and give nothing in return. And Paul's like, that's true. <laughs> and I was like, that's really cool that you can see that he, it's like all these things talking about being the one and being like this. I don't know. I don't know exactly what it's supposed to symbolize this Messiah figure, but it's like almost a connection between like their world and the everything else like a yeah. connection you know i think I mean? it's an alliance i think that the messiah figure in the west actually maybe everywhere it actually seems to be something like a prof or someone who's aligned with truth like as such is willing to say it regardless of the circumstances and that in that circumstance as paul you could imagine that he's under something like an obligation to not to say that, <laughs> to to combat that and be like, yeah, but we hooked you up with this or we can't do this or whatever. But there's a willingness on his case to just regardless of the expectations uh, that are probably substantial and placed on him to just say what's true regardless, to just note it, to be like, yeah, I don't care. I don't care that I'm under have some obligation here. I'm just going to say the way that it is. And if you don't like it, I don't care. <laughs> right. He's like pure almost. He's yeah. like pure yeah. And some of the other characters even look at him. What are you doing? And then the dad, this is what I like too about the dad's character, Leto, how he piggybacks off that. And he's like, okay, what can we do? You know what I mean? Like he, yeah. he is, fine. he's like, I want to, his whole idea is like, I want to make this right. I don't want to take advantage of you guys. I'm going to be different than the Harkonnen, right? You can trust us. We're not going to take advantage and blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's not cynical either. He's not doing it to manipulate the Fremen. He's doing it because he's, you have, he's actually doing it because he wants to learn something. 
like he shows up and he's we have this and this is what's made us great traditionally we have the like sea and air yeah, power and everything. Norm, normal he's like, i want desert powers that's cool like you have something that we don't have let's get into a dialogue with each other so that we can learn here and he shows up sincerely in an attempt to do this and i think that's part of what allows him part of what makes him a good father and a good leader is that there's a sort of there's a egolessness there's a willingness to learn a willingness to take things as they are and to in, intelligently to show up to the situation and be like we're obviously not going to be liked there's a long history of everybody showing up and, exploitation right is <laughs> we're not going to be liked here so th- we have to take that as a fact on the ground and do the best that we can to repair this relationship and hopefully get something fruitful out of it for everybody and his son is a it, his son's good character and willingness to say the truth is a consequence of his character. And so you watch both of them in that scene play out who they are in a way that reinforces each other. Yeah. I think too, the, I think part of what plays into this too is like with Paul's visions, because he's been seeing someone with blue eyes, which, and in the desert, which means it has something to do with Dune. And also he's been reading about the place a lot. So I think he's just aware of all of the historical context to this place. And so it almost like precludes you to be like, you can't, if history shows you something, you can't turn a blind eye to it. And then also you're being tasked with this thing to look after this planet. You almost can't, like it, it ups the ante even further because you can only, you know, learn so much from a history book. But once you actually go into this place, then all of a sudden you're like, I I can't look at this and (laughs) not say the truth anymore. (laughs) It's yeah. cool. It it makes it it really does make House Atreides a fascinating culture and group of people in a way yeah. that it's just I wanted to see more. And then they, wow. we should talk about the expedition that I think solidifies the character of Leto and like the example House Atreides has, where they go on a journey with oh my god. Something of the change. She's yeah. She's an emissary from there. The you go. Emissary of the change. I think is what her title was. But she's got blue eyes, and it's hinted at. Is she a Freeman this whole time? Is she just playing both sides? And we'll get there. But but she. So she goes out, and they take Paul and Lado, and I think one other person is on the ship. Maybe. Oh uh, yeah, the Josh Brolin. Yeah, that's what I thought. So they're all out there, and they see this sand crawlery looking thing, which I totally stole from Star Wars, which Star Wars stole from Dune. So it's comes full circle. Uh- <laughs> and then like L they have a name for it. Like the, they call it the, the blade. It's like the tooth of El Sayud or something like that. That's the yeah. tooth of the, that's the tooth of the sandworm. The worm. Yeah. yeah. But I think El Sayud is his, yeah. his name. Sometimes I might be butchering it, but one of these harvesters basically, and it's supposed to get lifted away from the worm because they will attack it if they don't move it, but it fails. And normally they're like, we'll just send a rescue ship to them. And Lado's like, yeah, that ain't happening. We're, we're making this, we're here. We're making this happen right now. And they're like, but we don't have enough spaces. Like we'll make it happen. And <laughs> it's a very different, it shows again, the type of character that he is because it's who cares about the whole who cares about the spice that they're going to get and the money that they can get from that right now it's there's 20 something odd guys on these platforms and we need to go now like right now we need to take them out of here and there's and there's a great risk to him and everybody but it's the immediate almost thoughtless or reckless doing of the right thing it's just like don't have time to think time to do this 
It, it reminds me of, did you see Luca? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> also great film. The dad character in Luca with the one arm. Mm-hmm. Great Disney movie. There's a moment where the one kid runs away and he goes, he ran away and he just stands up and he starts grabbing his things. And they're like, even if he, and like the kids warn him, they're like, I don't think he wants to be found. He goes, I don't care. I'm going to go anyway. And it's just like this willingness, write that in there. Stop talking. It's time to take action to do the right thing. And we're just going to do it. We're just going to do it. It goes back to that. There's a call to action and he answered. He's shown that's the kind of person he is. Something needs to be done. He's not going to wait. He's not like, we're going to, let's go help them. What are you talking about? Let's go. And he, I love how the way it like dives down. Oh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's so dope. Looking ships they have or whatever you want. Dragonfly. Being able to make the look of the vibrating wings. There's no simulation you can do right now that can accomplish that, how realistic it looks. Yeah. So the only way they can do that is probably with post compositing with some really talented artists that did a whole bunch of work when things vibrate and when light catches it, know how that's going to look. It's just super masterful in how they attempted to recreate something like that. Like in Dune 84, they didn't even attempt to make vibrating wings. (laughs) like it's just a flying cube (laughs) it's not even anything so it just shows like how far technology has gone to simulate something like that to the degree at which it does like the first time you see them flying where they have three of them in the shot at different depths and you get like when one passes over you get like the 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 vibration and like distorts the image behind it that is just it's just masterful like the technical execution is just incredible (laughs) And that, that's awesome. That's what, I mean, that's what technology does. They were just so ambitious back in the, the previous film. They, they, I feel like they knew what they wanted to do, but they were just like, fuck man, we just can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now I haven't seen the original film. So I, I do plan on going back to watch it just to see the differences. But those are things that like, personally, I don't even notice that technically, but it's still, like you see it and it's just like, those things are cool. They did it well when someone who's not technical can just look at it and be like, yeah, that makes sense. Because yeah. <laughs> like, like you immediately went to Dragonflies without me saying anything. And that's perfect because that's what you're supposed to think because it's right. based off of that. And so like I go into that level of detail because I find that biomimicry engineering stuff really interesting. And I just find it fascinating. Like, how do you do that? That's just where I go with these things. <laughs> but yeah, even how they fly those things is really cool. Time to go like. It's like you just drop everything and you go on the nosedive down to the ground. I would, if I was in that thing, I'd be like, we don't have to do that. Like, <laughs> Can we just make this a smoother ride into? <laughs> You're like, why do we have to do a dive bomb? Please, no. Right. I didn't sign up for a roller coaster here. Yeah. But that scene, man, that whole sequence, holy fuck. Like, they nailed it. They nailed the intimidation of this giant freaking worm. Oh, yeah. Because you like, haven't seen them at all up until this point. You maybe I think you might have seen like, like the sand rippling uh, like in the distance kind of thing, but like yeah. nothing definitive and of words like, about it. You he, you hear and about it in the dis, like the history book yeah. descriptions, the holograms that he that Paul's watching, and then you see a plaque on the wall with a giant worm and like sun coming off of it and everything. But you don't see it, it uh, until you, the vibrations in the sand and all this. But yeah, you're right. It they nailed it. It's holy fuck. <laughs> it's and that it's perfect. That's the Ouroboros. That is that mythological archetype to a T. It's that giant snake beneath the surface that's always there, circling the world. It's Jormunder, yeah, from the, from right the giant snake mythology. that got so big that it could bite its own tail. 
it circled the world tree. And then, or Tiamat, this this she dragon that mm-hmm. is associated with the water, or Python, who is a she dragon before that, hmm. and all this stuff, who comes up from the ocean at Delphi, and all this. It's that giant chaotic thing outside of your understanding that emerges from beneath the surface that you now have to deal with. I was gonna have a question about that trope. So. This is really dope, and I love how it seems so deliberate. Like, this can't be consequential. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's symbol, these symbolisms can't be consequential. But the way I took the worm wasn't chaos. And tell me if I'm wrong. This is a question. I didn't see it as chaos, per se, but almost like this, this thing that was just like, it. how do I want to phrase it? Like, it didn't pick sides, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for anyone, yeah. it was this foreboding yeah. energy. It wasn't. It's not necessarily evil. It's not good. It just is. Yeah, it's actually why chaos is not a good word for it, but I don't have something else. It's uh, the Ouroboros and chaos is a it's almost a statement of fact. It's completely a it simply is. It, it's interesting because we're learning this or learned this in the 70s with and after with chaos theory was that we were looking at our mathematics and our engineering and everything. And you could zoom into a certain place and it would look like the world was this mechanical linear set of events. It's Newtonian physics where I think Newton at one point said, give me the where every particle is placed in the universe and I can tell you where it'll be in a thousand years or whatever. Because it was this idea that everything was just on a set trajectory. And then Einstein came around and things became relative. And then in chaos theory, they realized, "Uh oh, it turns out that the linearity only exists in like a time. Only if you zoom in close enough. But the Hmm. moment you look at. It was actually a guy named Edward Lorenz, who I think was a meteorologist. He was trying to look at the ecosystem and figure out, to predict weather and found out it was impossible. It was totally impossible. And it's because everything interacts with everything else. And the moment you zoom out, nothing is linear. It's completely non-predictable. And he came up with this huge mathematical representation of this called the Lorenz Attractor. So it's a bunch of, they graph a whole bunch of points on a 3D graph, essentially. I can actually explain this in detail, but it's a long explanation, so I'm not going to do it. But they have a 3D graph, and you trace the line or the little dots at each point in time, and you try to see if it comes back to the same place, because then it's predictable. Ah, okay, it's arrived where it started. Now we have a sense, okay, over this amount of time, it does this sort of behavior. But it turns out that in situations like this, once you zoom out well enough, nothing ever returns to the base, ever. It just spins and goes around itself and does all kinds of crazy shit. And it'll create, and a Lorenz attractor will create a spiral around itself, but it will never actually return to where it is. So there's a pattern, but it isn't predictable in any obvious sense. Now, this evolves over time as they get better computing power to create Mandelbrot sets, which are supposed to be a description of reality. Look up a video of them. They're oh, wild. they're wild. And so it's, they're these huge, it almost looks like a Rorschach test, these crazy elaborate images. And you just zoom in and there's another one just as elaborate underneath that. And then you zoom in even more, bang, and there's another one just like ad infinitum. And that's yeah. like a, the best, perhaps the best description of what reality actually looks like that we have is just this unbelievable level of unpredictable complexity. Mm-hmm. And that's what chaos is. That's what it is. It's gotcha. not good. It's not bad. It's just that immense thing underneath your understanding. And you can become arrogant and think that you understand everything. But you zoom in a little bit more and oh boy, <laughs> or zoom out and oh, this whole thing is huge and massive, unpredictable, 
giant snake that you're having to contend with. And that was the Ouroboros was the initial means of conceptualizing our world. And the reason they use a snake in part, it wasn't just a snake. It was often like a winged snake, like Quetzalcoatl for the Aztecs or some other thing. But it was amoral or in some sense bimoral. It had good and bad within it. There was a good Ouroboros, a bad Ouroboros. There was the night and day was in it, male, female, everything was it. Like the yin and yang is also an Ouroboros symbol. It's a circle. It's self-containing, complete, but self-generating, all of these things. But the morality of it is is bivalent. Hmm. That's really sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but okay. not, I can, I'll take this. Hold on, I want to take this moment just to expand on a, something I've already talked about. Because, and this might help with some of the things we spoke on earlier, but the Ouroboros being the initial symbol means that it's undifferentiated. So there's a whole bunch of things, good and bad, and all these things in it, but they're all sort of part of the same character, right? As time goes on, cultures start to differentiate these things. So after the Ouroboros, it's the great mother, and that's derived. So the Ouroboros is derived from her longstanding relationship with snakes. It actually, there's theories out there that it actually created our visual acuity, that there are primates in areas where they're with snakes that prey on them have higher visual acuity than those that don't. And we actually seem to have uh, really high acuity for snake-like patterns in the lower half of our vision. And we come pre-packaged with snake recognition hardware in our brains. And it's very close and easily associated with fear of snakes. So you don't come pre-packaged with a fear, but it's easier to get a fear of snakes than guns, worms, spiders, whole bunch of other things they've done these tests with. And women seem to be more afraid of snakes uh, or more easily made fearful of snakes than men. And that seems to be because of, because women would have to protect children. They were mm. right. So it was more uh, functional for them to be super cautious around snakes because they had a kid to look after. But also that also accounts for the high rates of, I forget what it's called, but snake phobia in women than in men. Mm-hmm. And so you use that circuitry to create a conception, that initial conception is like a snake. Above that, you have the great mother, that result, that's using the circuitry of our relationships every person has with their own mother, but it's it's more complicated than that. But it's but the great mother remains bivalent. So you have the great mother as such in the Bene Gesserit, and then you have the good mother in a Jessica, and I imagine we'll have a bad mother emerge, but I can't think of who it would be in the story. The terrible mother. She consumes is usually the story. Is that she's... We don't have the negative... And then the father breaks off from... The great mother's actually hermaphroditic, so it's still male and female, and then great father breaks off from that. And then you have the good and bad, and the good is... Uh, Leto. and the bad is the baron, and probably the emperor, too, is hiding in yeah. the background. But we just don't uh, have any visuals of him yet. And then the ego, so the individual person, is another piece of this that interacts with all of these in different ways. It's like the subjective person watching all these things and trying to identify who's yeah. who and what's what. And it's clearly Paul in this right, story. That's Paul. I feel like he's taking a lot of cues from a different people. Like he clearly looks up to Duncan Idaho and like yeah. in the scene when he first lands and they're like and Duncan is a hero character. Yeah. He's like, you really respect them. He's like, yeah, I do. He's like being informed by yeah. like his respect. Like it's transferring from Idaho to Paul almost because he looks up to him as like yeah. a brother almost. Yeah. And I love the sincerity of all the characters. 
yeah. at Atreides. Yeah. Like everyone's even you could imagine Duncan is like, oh, these are people we might have to be at war with or something like this. But he's not really care. Like he even fought like he learned to respect a guy because they were going to try to kill each other. Like they got <laughs> caught into this moment where they had to fight to the death. And he was like, God, they're incredible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ways, and he said he respects them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So and that's the end of my tangent anyway. Sorry. That. <laughs> that's what this podcast is all about, man. <laughs> that's why we have long form. <laughs> you elaborate on complex ideas. Clearly this story is no, there is, it's no stranger to depth. It's been around long enough that people, it's got a cult following for a reason. So. That's what's so cool about <laughs> employing these archetypal figures is that because there's a whole history associated with their development it's they're rich they're so rich yeah like i talking about the Ouroboros, it's like Ouroboros, python tiamat quetzalcoatl apsu a whole it's like you can just keep naming throughout history all of these things time and time again and it allows for a context for people to come to understand this whatever your yeah. tradition happens to be you can arrive at this with some basic understanding of what it is you're trying to get at it really it like puts so much flesh on the bone when you get to employ these huge historical conceptions of and it's, reality and I story. mean it, to me it thinks when I hear that it, it to me I think that it's in that way, it's probably because people will intuitively resonate with these stories, but don't know why. And that's yeah. because I think that's why it's people- mapping on. It's it's the thing that creates the relationship with the story that resonance is the fidelity of the representation right. with the underlying circuitry you already inherited. Yeah. Right? It's, it's been- it's, oh, here's a representation and bang, that <laughs> matches with the way that I think. And oh, wow. <laughs> it's cool. And it's they're so old. Like yeah. the, the, the oldest ritual, they discovered this, I think within the last five years, some anthropologists in uh, Africa found the oldest ritual in the world that is 70,000 years old. Wow. And it's, there's a rock that looks like a, like a giant Python and they etched into it to make it look more like a Python. And there's little burn pits where they would take, they had a bunch of stones that were really precious stones. And they, some of them were still strewn around, but the only ones that were in their burn pit were red stones. And they come from like tens and hundreds of miles away. Wow. So this is that's how old the sandworm in Dune is. The sandworm in Dune is over <laughs> 70,000 years old. That's the time scale. It's, cra- it's nuts. It doesn't make any sense, right? Would you think 70,000? Like, how do you even put that in? Right. <laughs> and, and say nothing. And, and here's an example of how. OK, so. How is it that a, a, a worm and doom would resonate? Why would you have resonation with the circuitry? I already talked about some of the circuitry that yeah. you can prepackage with the snakes. But the fact of that representation will it will change your actual circuitry. And there's an example of this in cooking. <laughs> that what we did was we came up with a cultural thing. It wasn't inherent in nature to cook, but we witnessed nature having wildfires. And I think we imitated nature was the idea that we actually imitate nature. And the Aborigines in Australia will still set wildfires to cook out these lizards at the. And we mimicked nature. We took it on for ourselves. We created uh, a tool that we, everybody could employ. And now it's affected our biology so much you can't eat raw food. That's nuts. So imagine that with the snake. <laughs> so it's like this many tens of thousands probably longer because there's an oral history and imagine how long this history went before they had the tools to etch into stone the snake figure (laughs) like this could be 
this is easily pre-human, I think. Probably, clearly. Representations of the nature of reality that have been around so long that they affect the circuitry in your actual brain. And now that circuitry resonates with the representation in the movie Dune and it fits. It resonates. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> uh, it's so dope. Even too, I feel like the... The one of the key parts of this that heightens the tension of the the sandworm scene is Paul's reaction to the spice, because this is the first time that anybody like it's talked about and you've seen blue eyes a couple of times, either in dreams or people mention it from just what they know about these people or about what spice does to people. But they don't really elaborate on it. And I, we haven't even really talked about what spice is. So just to do a quick what it's for, it's basically like the gold of this galactic civilization and it can be used for two things it's it's refined into fuel for starships and it's also a very uh, psychedelic drug and if you take too much of it you go crazy and you also get blue eyes if you li- uh, are exposed to it too much and it's a very distinct blue on top of that but it's also incredibly close to soma <laughs> in how it affects people which is a Hindu psychedelic. And it's probably because peyote was involved at some point in Frank Herbert's life that he decided to throw in this psychedelic like thing. I'm very sure he right. read doors of perception, which came out a few years before it. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize that they were, that Huxley wrote that so close to 50 Huxley's something. Old. 58 was Huxley or something like that. Oh, and wow. this was when 65. Oh, the book. Okay. So he was easily exposed to it and was aware of it. I, if he didn't read it, I was I would be very surprised because you don't go try peyote without being intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> right, you don't just go like trip and go, oops, I fell into peyote. That's not something you accidentally do, especially in the 60s. Maybe. I don't know. But <laughs> Depends what concert you're at. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it depends on which Woodstock you went to. But anyways, so I, that's just me like playing historical quarterback. on trying to tease apart why he decides yeah. to throw in a psychedelic. But in in my modern sensibilities, to me, what I see Dune is it's this is the perfect cultural moment for this story to be reintroduced to our culture because we've been picking yeah. up the baton from what we left off in the, the late 60s and early 70s when all those psychedelics were banned. And now that there's all this new robust science trying to flesh out what psychedelics do to our consciousness, that now all of a sudden it creates this cultural moment for dune to show this as a symbolic representation that all of us can be like oh yeah that's definitely useful which if this came out any point prior to this it just would have fallen flat because it wasn't mainstream enough and it was only would hit for people who were really into the science that was all being done underground and it's worth noting that frank herbert elevated psychedelics to the level of the most important resource in the universe Oh because shit! It's also, <laughs> oh, <I didn't> even, <laughs> <laughs> because when he 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 makes it the fuel by which they travel interstellarly or whatever, and it's okay. He's if we want to go to the stars, this is how we have to do it. <laughs> if we want to go to the stars, bro, I didn't even. <laughs> dude, I, it, <laughs> That's he definitely was on some shit. so they don't even mention this so the people that navigate the starships like the big spaceships between planets they're called guild navigators (laughs) the way they become guild navigators is they literally take so much spice they don't look human anymore 
1984 tried to try to do it. tried to show what these things look like. I don't know what they look like. I don't know. I haven't read the description of the book, but they're interesting to say. The oh, they don't look human anymore. It looks like a, a uh, I mean, it's creepy cre- bug thing. I'm going to share my screen to you, Jordan. But if you guys look it up for the podcast recording. So this is what it looks like. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what the dude 1984 decided to to try and render. But crazy. in this film, they didn't attempt to do this. So <laughs> maybe they'll show them eventually. Maybe they won't. But that's what it takes to navigate through interstellar space. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of that that spider human hybrid that the Harkonnen had at that one point. That, mm-hmm. that creepy. I was like, what is that? Yeah. And it, the fact that, oh, it can't understand us, shows the sort of arrogant dismissal of the Harkonnen. Mm-hmm. But then the Bene Gesserit woman tells it to get out and it, and it listens, which yeah. suggests that uh, it's conscious and can understand. Pe- like, it's still a person tortured yeah. in this horrendous, like, Shake. arachnid-forming way. It's, oh, it's so creepy. And then should we get on to the point where shit goes sideways? Because we've talked about the good parts of the story so I far. Know, but, <laughs> but then everyone dies. <laughs> the end. <laughs> but not really. It's just a crazy turn of events. Like you can send something's off. They get back and they're going to sleep. And you're like, why are they showing something that's innocuous? And yeah, I think that the, the actually the only. I, I have really small complaints about small things that I don't right. really care about. Like the doctor. I think that the only like medium level complaint that I have is that I didn't feel the level of pressure that I, I think that I should have in their arrival. Like, yes. like you get the sense from Josh Brolin in one conversation, in their little fight that, that they're in danger and that they might be getting set up, but you don't quite feel the imposing Harkonnen force until it actually occurs. You know until what I mean? the, Like they're pushing but- the whole time. I mean, maybe I'm blind to this because it was brought up a whole bunch in the story. Yeah, you could tell like yeah. Dave Bautista's character is like, they're trying to take our shit away from us. Like, he's already pissed. Yeah. And yeah. and it, it seemed clear. That- yeah, did you guys get that? Did, did you feel like, uh-oh, something really bad is coming, it's coming, I, it's coming? Or what? I feel like when I knew something was going to happen was when I can't, I've just been waiting to bring this up this whole time. The Tibetan throat <laughs> singing with the that chant they do. And it's got the blood and either putting the like the ah, blood triangles on yeah. their forehead. As soon as I saw that scene, I was like, oh, shit, like they're preparing to go fuck people up. And yeah, by fuck time. people up, it's literally and it goes back to what the Baron said from the Harkening Baron. He says, when is a gift not a gift? And I thought that was a great line. Right. And it's like this gift, but it's also a slap in the face. It's <laughs> intentional setting up. Yeah, because you you take them away from their home world. They're in process of reestablishing a controlled base. And from what it sounds like from the setup in the beginning, it sounds like the Atreides have a really good army so that fighting them on their home turf is not going to happen. Yeah. And so how do you make this happen? Decree by the emperor that you have to go to the worst possible place in the solar system that we know of. And put you (laughs) on your back foot. And now we're going to fuck you up. Yeah. And set them up for so they even had like, equipment and stuff like that. So. Yeah, they, they basically were left with nothing because the Harkin are assholes, because that's what they are. We <laughs> beat that to death. And even that feels to me like the kind of enticing, yeah, look at this nice little thing. Let me lure you into right. this trap. Here. And and it's also 
I, to me, this is like a complaint about nice people like doing the right thing. Because the House of Trades, by all examples, are the people that do what they're what is asked of them, and then and more. And it's Leto knew this was going to happen. I'm very sure that he knew this was going to happen. And it's he's but he's duty bound in some sense to to go respond to the call because yeah. that's what you do. So Joe, to answer your the initial question, I feel like. I, I felt that something was coming on the second watch. First one, I think I, I was with you, but the yeah. second one, there's a couple lines that come up where Leto says something like, he knows, he's like, we're, we've been here to set, like they set us up to fail. He knows he's mm-hmm. something's going on. We, we have, so that's why he's, we need to get this desert power quickly so that we can utilize the desert. And so when it does happen, we're, we're as strong as we are in our home world. So there's like a race against time and, Maybe they could have heightened that up a little bit where it's, we have to hurry up because they know eventually something's shit's going to go down. They just don't know when. But the real thing that I was like, oh, they're, the Harkonnen are coming. You know what I mean? Was in that scene with the Baron, he says, when he's like, a gift is not a gift. And he has this short little monologue. And he says something like, the emperor's a very jealous man or like a very dangerous, jealous man. And so this, the emperor knows, I think it's because of Paul. I think it's because they had a son when they were supposed to have a daughter that the emperor is like, oh, you if Paul yeah. is supposed to be you can overthrow me you'll have what i don't so he's fuck that get rid of them let's bring him here harken and do whatever you're gonna do you know yeah they mentioned this a couple times it's not super explicit it's like more in passing conversation but from what it sounds like is the emperor only has daughters and so paul being a male really like puts in threat the hold the emperor has on whatever the galactic po- political scene is it's so it, it's there's it's a double whammy again and Jesuits are annoyed that he's a male and the emperor is equally yeah. annoyed that he's a male so it's he's annoyed in general yeah <laughs> <laughs> really bro come on like why you gotta be different <laughs> i feel like it felt like a sneak attack the scene though to start that fight was some of the coolest action scenes like to show the shields on a ship and then they have the round penetrating the shield and then it's like oh, yeah. a contained explosion that work from a VFX standpoint is like the coolest thing ever. Dude. Like yeah. it is like the rounds coming in and like hitting him <laughs> and like vibrating on the top of the thing until it finally breaks the shield and blowing up. Yeah. Wild. And it's contained too. So you still get the ship container right. that's full of fire yeah. and then it blows out the top of it. It's just I don't know. I found it's so cool. <laughs> it's so good. Okay. Okay, so my viewing experience, this is the only way I want to see a movie going forward. So at the, the LA Live Regal Theater, they have this thing called Immersive, 4D. Immersive, yeah, immersive Ice, it's called. It's like an IMAX theater, but what they do, that's special. The sound is like out of this world. But what that really sets it in is they have on the sides and even behind me, they have these like reflective panels. Or I don't know if they're screens or whatever, how they do it, but it's like these panels. And they're like thin, like maybe like, you know, bigger than that, but like thin, long strips all on the side and so in this particular scene when all these explosions are happening and they're like shooting their rounds literally you can see the explosions like to the side of you i'm like when it's on that side of the screen and then it's like if there's lights in the back like it shines behind you and shit yo when that's when the sequence took place and they're shooting their rockets and they're swirling and like the explosions i literally was like <laughs> dude that's amazing we have to go to a premiere there one day dude let's fly to la and do it right now <laughs> absolute coolest way for dune part two we're going to la oh i'll do that yeah (laughs)
That sounds awesome. And we'll do a podcast, you know, within a couple hours of post watch. Oh, it'd just be me drooling. Yeah. <laughs> By far the coolest experience seeing a movie I've ever had. Like, That's so dope. Close. This fight scene was, I don't know, it's just, it, I think part of it too is you get two parts going on where the doctor betrays the family and then like you have all of the like people from the Harkonnen just rushing the seat of power and you're just like oh jesus christ what's like how are they gonna get out of this it's like almost like a checkmate scenario and it was also just an oh yeah i was like annoyed at the doctor too i was like for real like of all god damn it but then he i don't know he like minorly redeems himself because he replaces the tooth with a gas tooth yeah which i was like what i kind of heard it but i wasn't like sure what he i'm like so you're just trying to make him commit suicide i don't under you know yeah I, i had a hard time hearing that part in the thing yeah. I picked up on what was going on right. like, but anyway but I don't want to hop forward out of the fight scenes yet <laughs> Go ahead. like I was thinking about with swords and this is 10,000 years in the future or something or, or I guess 8,000 years in the future yeah. and I was like how do you how, my thought was the reason for justification was that you don't shoot guns in a spaceship that's what I came up with because you puncture the hole and then you're right. in a vacuum and everybody dies so you fight with swords fuck it that's the best I could. Come it's the up shield. With. It's the shield. Yeah. So the way the shield works is basically. Oh, so a bullet wouldn't work because the it's bullet a velocity. Is so fast. Yeah, it's a velocity it. thing. Basically, because the sword, you can control your velocity up until the point of impact and then still deal a killing blow. Right. So you've so. obsoleted the use of projectiles yeah. by having this personal shield stuff. Same thing with the ships. The ships have those too, but they've come out with cannon rounds that can slow, slow down. themselves down and burrow through the. To the shielding. Yeah. That makes. How fucking cool is that? Like <laughs> physics, right. baby. Let's set up for, to make sword fighting more interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like to have that tact or whatever skill to, and then you have to go slow, but then it makes it even more like intimate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause it can't just be doing your thing. It's like you have to very deliberate. Yeah. Oh, it's so awesome. Plus, it, plus it, it works well translated to film because you get to see for people who are not like well-versed with fighting combat, you get to see the difference of like good and bad, like very distinctly. Because you're the way they are composited the shields on people was they would basically take a filter glow, change the opacity and change it red or blue, depending on if it was good or bad. And it's the perfect way. It's almost because we're so immersed in video game culture nowadays. It's some of that culture is just bleeding over to modern sensibilities now. And you just understand how this stuff works when you have a shield. Yeah. It's so cool. What was I going to bring up? Oh, the, uh, so that when the Harkonnen like finally land and they're coming out of their ships and then Josh Brolin and the other, his soldiers behind them. I just thought that setup and like the, the color grading, they decided to use this like all blacks and like reds, oranges, fire, stuff like that. I wanted, I did want more of that. Right. I, don't want to, <laughs> I was like, damn, that looks cool. And they pulled away really quick. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that was one of my only, I wish I had that, but it's not. It's really so. get the sense too. It's not ambiguous. It's just so, it's such a definitive victory for the Harkonnen. Oh yeah. That it's crushing. It's, it's a just, crushing defeat. Like it's like even the really good fighters start fighting and then the oh they're kicking some ass here. They've made a line and they're acting like a failing for a moment. And then oh here comes the Emperor's guys behind them. Ah shit. And now they're <laughs> caught in a rock in a hard place. Yep. Dead. <laughs> and it's just it ships getting blown up. The whole thing is so brutally it's just you're fucked that's it yeah that's it the game over they pulled no punches basically and then the scene with the the banquet i, I thought because of the 
what did he do? They knock out Darted and he's naked inside of his meaning was that that they had him naked. Like, oh, yeah. Vulnerability. Yeah. And he's sprawled out like he can't even like he's paralyzed. He remains like a sacrificial looking character. He looks like he's being painted in a Greek painting. He's just <laughs> here's this now dying thing like a, a dotus stabbed with the tusk of. A wow, you're right. It's very picturesque uh, of like him falling over. Right. Like it's again, it's like the naked body of Jesus held by the Madonna. Ah, why? And he's just hanging out. It's just this chair holding him up. This disgusting. So beast creature he's that got- has a machine hooked to his spine to make him float <laughs> because he's too fat to walk just going oh you're just like going over the food he, he's like your cooks are great by the oh, way yeah that's <laughs> the thing he has to say you disgusting fuck it's like, oh god i thought he's too- like denethor in lord of the rings yes. when he's eating listening to his son talking sending his son out to go die because he's disappointed with him as he just and the tomato food. juice the eats the tomato and it <laughs> right same spirit right yeah. same terrible so father. when that scene happened what really sold it for me though is when he floats off the off of his table and like across the room it's such a subtle thing but what sold like his like decadence or his like gluttonous behaviors is he's floating and his one foot like brushes the corner of the table and he's so careless that he doesn't care that his toe touches, like brushes against this table. He's so reliant on this piece of technology to float him around. I'm, his body is useless. Like it's, it's uh, yeah, it's just, I'm just like, it just sends all of the grossest messages to you. You're just like, this is a horrible. Get your feet off the table. <laughs> like it's just gross. I don't know what it is about it. It's so subtle, but it just is like, right. uh. it's It's almost like he's fluttery and totally, he's above it all. And he's just floating around. But at the same time, he's just it's like it's it betrays a sense of just unbelievable arrogance. He's just nothing matters. I'm the best. I'm above everything. He's evil as fuck. He could float at the same level of all of his troops when he's coming in there. And that one scene, they're coming down the hallway all marching. But no, he has to be above them. Right. Yeah. He's a menacing figure, right? Like, oh, yeah. Forget the actor's name, but goddamn. Scarsguard, something Scarsguard. Yeah, his yeah, son yeah. played the clown in it. Oh, really? That's I don't know. That's dope. He was like scary in his own. It was like menacing to look at. Like, Skarsgård is his name. When he first levitates up in his long like cloak ish yeah. attire, or whatever, and it's just like, holy shit, this dude's scary and ugly and imposing. Yeah. He is a massive figure. Yeah, takes up the screen. He hangs over things. People are afraid of him. Every it's just he's just imposing all the time. Yeah, yeah. When that happened, when he bites the tooth, I thought that was dope. I, I like, love oh. this. How do you beat the shield? Like you can't use a knife. You can't use. All of a sudden, poison gas becomes like a very real tactic to kill people. And he almost mm-hmm. got him. He would have had him if he didn't have the opportunity to put on the shield. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because yeah. he's right there, and he almost killed. Well, him. he flew up. He was up in the top yeah. of the so the gas didn't reach. Yeah, and you see him yeah. put. It's funny because you see him put on his shield right before it, it, it also betrays this this kind of insecurity that this character has the kind of overwhelming insecurity that someone have to in to spur on the creation of that level of coercive control. It's a Stalin like character. It's super, super scared all the time underneath yeah. everything, paranoid to the core and creates more and more strict and overwhelming overbearing ways of protecting their own little fragile ego. And, and he doesn't even hear what the guy says. 
all he hears is a whisper from his opponent and he shields up because he's a coward. That's what it is. Because <laughs> fundamentally, he's a coward. Definitely is. But he's an arrogance too. The fact that he, like, the dude's paralyzed. He's on his last death. He whispers something. It's like, what do you, do you really care what he has to say? But it's like his arrogance is like, what did you say? Like to lean yeah. in. Like, hey. <laughs> yeah. How dare you get the last word? How dare you? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and then I thought but, too, the, like, the scene after that where he's like in the oil pit thing that's supposed to be like yeah. healing him. I thought the way they decided to design that fluid oh, yeah. was perfect. Yeah. Like <laughs> you just feel gross and you're like, you're supposed to heal in that. Like, right. He's being reborn in the muck. Yeah. Like it's seriously, like, oh. it's like the birth of the Urkai in Lord of the Rings yeah. where they're like being born from the earth and they're like, Aah. right. That is the thing from which <laughs> this character emerges. It's, and then like the way he comes out of it though, too, he's like coming out and he's got the pale white skin. So it's like even more yeah. contrasted with the black liquid, like falling off of his face. And it's just, it's oily. Yeah. You it just, Every, everything about the Harkonnen just grosses you out. <laughs> <laughs> They're ugly. They're, you hate them just by looking at them and be like, I don't like them. And now <laughs> you hate them even more after all this situation. Like, they <laughs> killed probably the most sincere leader you've met up to this point. Yeah. Within what? Probably the first hour of the film. Yeah. And you're already, you're already like, all right, we've established our sides. And then this whole point too, Paul and his mother are being taken away somewhere. Because, which is interesting, there's a part, I miss this the first watch, but there's a part where they say the Benny Desert, they, you know, go to see him when she's get out to that spider human mix thing. And she's like, you can't kill them because it's part of our plan. So the mom and the son have to live. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, okay, I won't kill him. But his thing is like, send them to the desert, they'll die. You know what yeah. I mean? That's so the way to work around the... <laughs> right. Every word he, that guy says is a lie. Even when he's pretending to be honest... He's already thought of a way around the honesty so that he can do what he really wants. It's the opposite of what Paul was doing when he was being remarkably honest, even in situations where it wasn't beneficial to him or where, despite the obligations he had. They're opposites. Yeah. And it's, it's so tight. And I feel like, too, I think the mom knew this was going to happen because hmm. there's a conversation with Leto and her. I think it's it might be right before, like, the scene right before all this kind of takes off. And he says to her, I always trusted you, even though I knew who you were. Like at the end of the day, you're a Benny Jester. So he's, I've always trusted you though. Um, but I'm asking you now, like when this happens, will you take care of our son? And she's of course, she's like, I'm not asking his mom. I'm asking the Benny Jester. And then she like hesitates. And then she's like, this isn't, you know, this. So it's, I feel like there's going to come a point because you've seen it here. She essentially knows some shit's going to happen, but she can't interfere. I think moving forward, there's going to be a moment and I might be wrong, but there's going to be a moment where, Paul's in danger and she can help him or not. And she doesn't because she's like, I have to let this play out mm. out of her duty as a yeah. Benny. Right. Um, That's a good character arc thing. Yeah. yeah. I can definitely see that happening. Cause she, I mean, like Joe, you mentioned this in the very beginning is she's stuck between two worlds. One is the mother and one is this crazy witch. Yeah. <laughs> which lady's pulling the strings behind the scene to bring about the, the new world order, I guess. I don't really know. Honestly, we don't like, I guess the whole thing is crazy about this. There's been so much to say, but almost like there has, there really is no real climax to this story in this first movie. It's more of, but wait, there's more. <laughs> it's part one. This is like in, in a typical story act structure. This is like act one. Like mm. we're still in act one, you know what I mean? And then yeah. parts will be, I don't know if there's three parts. I'm assuming there's going to be three parts, but yeah. 
get to the second act and then we'll get the climax in the third. But it just did feel like the beginning. Zendaya, this is only the beginning. But the first act of something like it, like the ending didn't feel like an ending deliberately but i heard a criticism i don't remember if it was you guys or if a video i watched but one of the things they said about the the ending is they should have not teased anything about the freeman they should have just had the fight end and then cut yeah, it there i'm not even sure they should have made it to the fremen or yeah or that or just like, as soon as you like they maybe meet them and then the fight starts in the second film yeah yeah I, it's hard to say without knowing what happens in the second film. I know. I, think, I don't know either. I think, this, I think it was a political move. I think that they were, because I think it was, was it Warner Brothers? I think it's Warner Brothers. Didn't guarantee a part two. Yeah, it wasn't Greenland until after the f- film was released. Yeah. And it, it I, did really well. Right. They were scared because of COVID and all the stuff that they, they didn't know if it would make any money. Oh, I, I see. I think that what Denis Villeneuve and them were doing was playing a political move, cutting it off at a place where it felt like it ha- it had to have the next part. Yeah. But you can't have closure <laughs> yeah. in any sense. <laughs> Otherwise, it feels like the movie could stand alone. And I think they really were fighting that and trying to, in some sense, entice the audience into fighting for a second film. Yeah, which we're, we're getting. That's one thing, though. That's my biggest critique. And it's not even a critique on the film or anything. It's just the business, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> It, you, the first scene, the very first thing, it says part one. The first thing you see. And like, it was never marketed that it was a part one up until that point. Like, I didn't see a single thing as a, that was part one until I got until, in the yeah. theater. Yeah, that's a stubborn director. That's what that is. <laughs> <laughs> You're totally right about that. Even in the marketing of it, they hinted that it was more than. Yeah, right? they said it was like a Lord of the Rings or Star Wars-esque mm-hmm. thing right. in the marketing. I'm like, so that means it's more than one film. And then you see it part one. I'm like, okay, cool. And then after the fact is when I found out, oh, part two just got greenlit. And I'm like, that's a very interesting way to go about this film and like all the process and the business and stuff to be like, we're going to do everything in our power to make it a part one, but we don't know if there's going to be a part two. So now they have to start filming. I don't know if the script's written yet. I don't think it is. They said it was like they had like a draft of it or something almost done. Yeah. It's a show of little faith on the part of the I think it's the publisher. Or the studio. Yeah, on the part of the producers yeah. right, who in the studio. Because it's in the era of COVID, and in particular in this genre, because Blade Runner didn't make much, neither Blade Runners, the first or the second, made much money. Really? It, yeah. At all. They just became cult, or at least the first one became a cult classic later. And there's, I remember reading an article that was even like, oh, people were surprised about the lack of money that the new Blade Runner made. But why are we? Because the first one didn't make any money either. I thought it, Blade Runner was fantastic. Oh, they're great films and they don't have broad appeal and they're expensive because they're sci-fi. Right. So I think that they're going, uh Oh, same director, same genre oh, era I, of COVID there's red flags. Uh, you know, Yeah. <laughs> and they were just squeamish. They're like, Nope, I'm not committing to a second film until I know this thing makes money. Especially if you two like, the 84 dune they're like oh we got to follow that up are we just going to be a a modern version of that (laughs) that makes sense it's it was just it's maybe this is me being selfish but it's frustrating because i'm like we have a long wait (laughs) (laughs) i agree with you the same way i don't care if it's selfish yeah (laughs) no i i think you're right i honestly too when you have something that's got a cult following though regardless of the money if it's done well enough it will attract people regardless because i think when you 
especially translating something like a book to film, if you do it well enough, you'll get the diehard fans, but then you'll also attract a whole new audience that wouldn't get into the book, which is a whole different, like you've now effectively doubled your audience, I guess, when you otherwise wouldn't. Like, how else can you guarantee an audience outside of Marvel films when you have something that's got such a, like a diehard fan base? The escape attempt, or the escaping of Paul and Jessica from their captors. And you get to see, we already mentioned this, but the use of the voice, but you get to see how his mother uses it. And Paul actually uses it too, to, to a lesser degree, but he uses it to help get his mother free. And they crash their ship, yeah. crash just outside of the city limits, and then they make a tent yeah. in the sand. And then this- Oh, no, did they get it? Because Duncan comes fine. It's before this. We're before that. No, they must crash it after, they crash it after the sandstorm, and then they have to walk, uh, or no, then- huh, They're on. like stuck overnight, is what I remember. And they he like gets affected by the spice again, and he freaks out. And has, hanging on the tent, he, I don't remember he, the- here. He tells his mother that he's like, why did you make me a freak? Like, I thought this was like one of those confronting your destiny type situations where he's like rebelling against the things yeah. that he's called to. Traumatized. Yes. I, mean, he's supposed, yeah, I think he's supposed to be 16. Oh, yeah. And he's given the note. His mother had the note with uh, the ring, his father yeah. with the seal on it. That's what I think that's what triggers all of this, because like now he's technically he's technically the Duke. Yeah, that I in guess. the sand, and he's just tripping balls because of spice in the sand. Yeah, possible yeah, futures. A war in his name is what he says. Yes, you're right. There's a war in my name, and he's like the one wearing the gold armor, and he's got yeah. the blue eyes. I thought that lo- those scenes were so cool looking. <laughs> and we know that's where the story's going. You're not going to do that. <laughs> not have a war in your name? No, what are we going to Oh, left that aside. Decide not to have the war in my name. <laughs> the audience doesn't want to see the war. <laughs> I do. I, this whole, I don't know what act this would be as second act. I have to traverse the sand. And at this point, they don't have their, whatever those suits are called. I forget the name. I forget um, it too, but they're dope. Yeah. They like recycle your water, which is disgusting, by the way. But yeah. <laughs> like recycle your water for that you. They don't have, it's salty. But it's cool how Duncan Idaho comes to the rescue. They have their little beacon or whatever, set it off and Duncan shows up. But I feel like this whole segment is cool because it's like now they have to figure out how to survive in the desert. Uh, like I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but like when they have to do the sand walk, just imagine how. So we've all been to the dunes and we've climbed up tall mountains of sand. Tell me how annoying and tiring you would be after walking. Oh, my God. <laughs> Like all day, literally all day. You're just walking in sand. Like you can't even walk. It's like, man. and then there's giant worms around you. So you're like, if we fuck up, <laughs> we're going to have to run. It's just, I just really like how they made it seem like so hopeless. In that. I, I loved the kind of cultural thing about the sandwalk that they said that imitating the natural way that the sand moves in the wind. And to me, I'm like, oh yeah. And that's being done in the same way that we imitated nature's wildfires to create cooking it's the same we're imitating the sand in this case or imitating the desert and before in actual history we imitated the wildfires and and i was like oh that's so smart (laughs) it's just cool yeah and then they find like this oasis and you they they, i guess it's like an oasis or like an abandoned silo for that part the where duncan idaho's last stand yeah that's right after that is right after they get to, that's right. So they get out of the city. They have their little tent. Duncan finds them. That's how they get the fly thing. 
And they, then they go with meet, Duncan to the new place. They meet up with the emissary of the change, yep. which now you can basically confirm she's also an emissary of change, but she's more of a freeman than that. Than that. Because <laughs> she's. Right. She even says something like that she, her higher order value here isn't the uh, structures, this political machine that everybody yeah. else seems to be serving, but is her religious beliefs supersede the political ones. And so when given the option <clears throat> between helping them or not helping them, she helps them because it's within a religious purview to do or, 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 or designs or whatever to do. And then she dies for it and she states it out. She goes, yeah, fuck you. Like I'm yeah. doing this for God. It was essentially so dope. And the, she, but where she went out was so dope. With the oh, thumper. Yeah. Yeah. She starts pounding the ground. I was like, dude, if, that, if there's any way I'm going to go out, I want it to be like that. <laughs> I mean, I, I like the idea, and I don't like getting digested. <laughs> you don't want to be digested by giant worm? Yeah, fuck that. I'm killing myself. I'm on the way in. <laughs> but, yeah, like, that whole scene, plus, like, the way Duncan Idaho goes out was just, that was the ultimate, like, badass sacrifice yeah. fight scene ever. Because, like, you thought he was down, and he gets up and still kills, like, two or three more guys. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, these are the Emperor's bad guys, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, because yeah. they're wearing white with the red. They look like Crusaders. I didn't put that together. I thought they were Harkonnen. Yeah, these are the Emperor guys. They wear white with red. It's also worth noting that a bunch of the Emperor guys got fucked up from the sand. The Fremen who were hiding in the sand when they yeah, first Yeah, they up. were right in. They were because they were hiding in inside the sand, of there, but yeah. then they like immediately disappear when. The fact that the Fremen imitate, in this case, the sandworm. Because they can disappear. Oh, right, they're hiding underneath the sand and then attacking from underneath it. So the whole culture, in some sense, is just totally built. They in. worship the giant sandworm. In some sense, they're in the Ouroboric state. They worship the python. I think it is a god to them. I think they say that. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Like, how do you kill something that big anyways? I don't know, but he could get his tooth. But uh, So they leave from there. And again, it's they were alone for a minute, and then they had friends, and now their friends are gone. What did they? Oh, they had a, a smaller aircraft they were able to take but they were being chased into a storm so this is what you were talking about yeah and he basically has the the whole use the force luke moment but yeah. it's for yeah more of the void or visions it's visions yeah he gets a vision of the guy that he'll later kill yeah and then uses the wisdom that he learned from that vision in order to navigate this insane situation and it's again a part of the philosophy of the Fremen because it's it's not it's never a fighting of reality with them. It's an imitation of reality. So instead of subjugating it like the Harkonnen or whatever would do, or not exploiting it in a bad way, there's an attempt to learn. There's a positive attempt to learn from it from the Atreides, but they die too early. But Paul and learning from the Fremen in this case, the vision of the Fremen learns that, oh, I shouldn't try to fly or navigate, which would be something like to fight the sandstorm. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to let the sandstorm do what it's going to do, and we'll turn out all right. right. So everything with the Fremen is imitate the the sand, imitate the sandstorm, right? It's, it's always in alignment with whatever reality happens to be instead of a subjugation and exploitation. And so he does that yeah. again. It's just he learns it from a potential future that he has yet to experience in the present. Yeah. Damn, that's and, fucking cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go ahead and bring this up now because I feel like we're right here. And this is the, that mentor idea, right? 
where it's like he has this vision of this guy who mentored him, but then it obviously turns out differently. I think what these visions are and what they represent is he's whatever the meaning of that outcome is still happens. So like he was supposed to be mentored by this person. It didn't happen as he saw it, but the guy still served the purpose. And I'll wait for the second point, but here, I mean, he sees these vision and then basically someone's like, let go. So he throws the handles and just like kicks back and is like, fuck it, let's just, whatever happens. So he still gets value from that, even though not in the way that he sees it happening. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's spot on. And I, I actually thought that this moment was because I can't help but draw the parallels from Star Wars in this scene. But I thought it it felt more sincere, like the way it's been set up this whole time, like with Star Wars, it, it, maybe just because it's sign of the times of like the original Star Wars film. It felt rushed. And it's like all of a sudden you just get this moment of use the force, Luke, and it, you don't really get much build up to this point. But it feels like. It's been building to this thing and the visions have been getting more deliberate or more like lessony yeah, up it, until this point. So you really get the sense of, oh, he's like becoming something uh-huh. or like he's like having agency of who he's becoming. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. There's an eight. This is what I think. There's that same kind of willingness of choice and, and whatnot and the beckoning of both sides in Star Wars and in Dune, because there's that moment in the swamp with Yoda, yep, where Luke is fights Darth Vader, and then sees his face in yep. the beheaded skull of Darth Vader, right? killed himself. And there's a recognition there that oh, uh oh, I could become the very thing I'm going to fight. I have to make a choice about this. It seems to me really that Star Wars is much more kind. <laughs> it's more. It's nicer. Uh-huh. Dune is much less interested in being acceptable. I am, I think, I know I have to admit where the story is going. I've watched enough, like, just commentary. Oh, Dune did this. And I was like, fuck, okay, now I just got some spoiled. But, <laughs> like, I've spoiled it, damn it. And, but it does seem to be much more brutal. It, it's just, there is a choice for, for Paul in that same kind of choice exists in Star Wars, but they serve different things. And I actually think that in some sense, Star Wars seems to me to be more Eastern, Hmm. more, the force is more tranquil than the experiences that Paul is having. Yeah, I can see that. And there's a certain kind of, it's almost like Star Wars is like, what will be? So long as you allow that thing to be, fight that thing, then things will turn out all right. But Dune admits of a certain amount of just inherent brutality in experience. And it might not be the fault of the Ouroboros figure in this character, but it might be the fault of the father figures here, the bad ones, the ignorant, even good ones, and the overbearing good great mother or whatever. But there's a willingness. It feels very Western tragedian to me. It's it's here's here's. Oedipus, who goes out and he he gets this these people to tell him, here's your fate. This is what's going to happen. He goes, fuck that. I'm going to make a decision. And he goes out into the world to uh, abandon that. And then he becomes a successful hero in conquering the Sphinx. But then he suddenly comes back tragically to the beginning yeah. and fills out his fate anyway and then rips his eyes out and this whole thing. It, it feels to me that it's very much like, you can be decent for a time and then the whole fucking thing comes crashing down and it just much, it really feels like Greek tragedy to me. It's an epic. 
Yeah, I, I would say that tragedy makes more sense in this situation, especially contrasting to Star Wars. Even just with the like the setup of Star Wars is you have some unknown farm boy who in reality does have a divine birth, but right. he isn't aware of that until what? And that <laughs> remains the case for Paul. His divine mother is the Bene Gesserit. Just He's all like, aware to him this whole time. And it's yeah. like the reality of what his birthright means is just pounding him in. It's almost like he's a piece of steel and he's being molded into a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he has less. It's not that he doesn't have autonomy. It's his auto- autonomy is balanced with the dictating forces of culture and nature before him. His birth was designed and it was never his choice, but he has some choice in this, whether or not he wants to take I, that man. I think the choice for him is by the events that unfold that allow him to come into contact with the Freeman, allow him to mold his birthright as he sees fit in a more benevolent way than would might have otherwise happened. Yeah. And this and it says me, I have no idea where the story goes. So that's just me. <laughs> From a psychological level, I'd, I'd say something like this is true because you might have insights to what will happen if you do a certain thing, like a vision. You might actually see it in image, like it's episodic memory. Like you're looking back at an old memory, but you might imagine it as some future that you could or could not bring about. Yeah. And you could know where that's going to lead you and you have the choice about whether or not you want to do that or not do that. And so I think in some some subjective sense, this kind of visionary experience is real. It's real that you can have that whether or not the vision is an accurate portrayal of the future reality is less clear, but you can have just from a subjective standpoint, it can appear true. And so it's, I don't know, it adds an, a layer of depth to Dune to recognize I, that you can actually have that exact experience. I think it's because it, like each of us can resonate to Paul in some sense. Because there's something in our lives that feels something like being stuck with yeah. the weight of your own decisions or the things that call you in your life. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a coming of age story in that sense. Yeah rip down all the the magnificence of the story and stuff like that. And you just take it to its very rooted storyline. It's like coming of age story. He was, he has duties and it's his choice whether he wants to take them on or he's going to reject them. So in that sense, I feel like everyone can relate to that. The call to action. I keep calling that. I think that's one of the heavy themes of this. You have a call to action. Yeah. And what I like about this theme or the, the take on this theme is that you have a call to action. Usually you'll be like, and you have to answer, you have to answer. But it, I think what Dune is saying, do you have a call to action and whether you answer or don't, that doesn't determine your worth. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Dune is saying with this Messiah thing. Like he might be, he might not be, but like either way, he still has an important role to play. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And that's, I'm like, I, I think that's what hits home for a lot of people. It's you might not live up to your expectations, but that doesn't mean you're any less than. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I like that. Yeah. And to your point, the comment by Leto to his son is very much like that. It's your value is not determined by the role you play. You have an intrinsic value it, at the very least to me. You have a value. You mean something to me. And so even if the universe in some sense doesn't care or all these other people don't care, well, to hell with them. (laughs) (laughs) 
Right. And it, it's awesome. And so where we leave off scene wise. Basically Sandstorm. We're basically right Sandstorm. Right crash. at the very right at we're the very at end the of the Fremen fight. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, we're basically at the Fremen fight. We can passingly glance at the worm part. Yeah. If we yep. want. The the only it's interesting because the only uh, maybe not the only thing to pull from that, but I think the major part to pull from that is that Paul is the person who faces down the underlying chaos of reality. And uh, and survives. Yes. So that's representationally what you get. It's there's yeah. this moment where the big fucking worms are, hey, bitch. Like, because <laughs> uh, he just stares at him. He's there, and his mom is kind of, let's run. And he's like, now I'm going to hang out here for a second. <laughs> what an important part about the worm before the fight. So notice how, like, when they were looking at each other and then it goes away and he's, someone set off a thumper or something. Yep. You hear it. So right before the fight, they like, they all know who Paul might be is destined to possibly be. So they have this idea and some believe some don't, whatever, but the, his mentor figure is, I think it's his mentor figure is like, it's not him. Like he was going to die. If he really was the one, then he would have lived. And they're like, he did live. And the guy's like, he only lived cause I set off my thumper. And I feel like this is this kind of idea they're circulating around is, but so just cause it didn't happen in the way you expected it to, it still happened. Yeah. Like you saved him. He's so lit, <laughs> but it's just, I feel like they're saying, he Personal. rationalizes it away because he's he like, he's like, well, I did that. It was my own doing. But I think that's what they're saying is like people have choice and choices do affect yeah. the, the greater, whatever you want to call it, greater. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I think that it's just, it's when he sees this guy in, in these visions to mentor him, he is doing that. Like he is actually mentoring him, but it's just not the way that he thought it was. Hmm that it was he thought it should happen yeah and it's i wonder i'm not convinced about this but i wonder to what degree it indicates frank herbert's willingness to give a soul or autonomy to characters that are secondary because it seems to me that it could have been the case that guy never that his choices would have resulted in his own survival had he recognize things in a different way he he was the man of little faith in that moment and it was like oh so maybe what the visions that we're witnessing that paul has aren't just the options of his own choices but the options of the choices of people around him oh interesting he's seeing not only his own visions but the visions of other people in some sense it's what future or the could people be. that are involved with his visions. right if even his mentor figure had done what he was supposed to do and he chose not to. And so he's robbed of that mentoring relationship, not only because of his own choices, but because of the choices of the mentor. Yeah. And now With- that cascades out or ripples out into a way where everybody needs to be taken account for everything. And that's why predicting the future is impossible for the story. We'll make it easy. <laughs> I, lo- I love that. It's, it's so dope too, especially because I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase what happened, but there's like a vision Paul has. I don't know if it's during or right before this battle. And the the voice says something like whatever the name of the Messiah becomes one when he dies or something like that. Something along those lines is what the voice says to him. But then it also says it doesn't need to be the Messiah. Something it's like this abstract kind of dialogue that's or monologue, whatever that's happening that he hears. And so I think by Paul, killing this guy because he was forced he, his hand was forced he tried to say to yield and they're like no and this kind of fight is to the death and it's against his mentor so he has to kill the guy who is supposed to be his mentor and by doing that is that's allowing him to later become the messiah figure 
like literally because they say yeah. you either or I, I, I wish I remembered the exact quote that it happens, but it's something along those lines. Like basically, death has to happen for you to be like fully awakened. Huh. That's fascinating because that's mythologically in in traditionally what you'd see is that the hero character is forced into a situation where they have to kill their mother and kill their father. But it could be figurative, but often it would symbolically literal. And what that's representing is that in order for someone to become an individual, they have to kill the hold that nature and their impulses and instincts have over them. And they need to kill the power that the culture and tradition has over them so that they can speak honestly about what they believe and do these things without being interfered with by their instincts and impulses or nature, tradition, and obligation. And so it's as if what they did is that Paul doesn't have the opportunity or necessity to kill his literal mother or literal father, but he's a father figure in the form of his mentor that he kills in order to move into a place where he can take on this prophecy. Yeah. That's, yo, this is so great. It's deeper than I thought it was. This is so (laughs) There is a lot of material to cover in this, and we're only halfway through the movie, technically. Oh, I know. And I I have to go soon. I know. You you got to get out of here. So I think at this point, we'll leave it. If we have more things to say down the road. Oh, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. If we want to, like, maybe do a 1984 to 2021 Dune, maybe that'll be round two. Or if we, any of us read the book, because I have the book, it's upstairs right now, so I'm going to plan it. Can I put one little final note? Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. That's, this is like the last we're... thing that happens. The last thing that happens in the story is the final, like, definitive, yep, that's the philosophy of the Fremen. Because you see them riding on the back of the <laughs> giant worm, and it's, yep. oh, everything that I've said to you, everything that has to do with their philosophy before indicates that they're in alignment with reality that's the idea is that you don't fight it you don't subjugate it it's all in alignment you ride chaos you ride it you surf on the back of the world that's their philosophy but it's implicit in the symbolism of the film that dude's an adrenaline junkie for sure oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) hey what you gonna go do today bro uh i think i'm gonna go ride some worms later gonna catch some sick gnar right If they call it Nara, I'm leaving the theater. <laughs> nope. I don't think they're going to. <laughs> I, I do want to read the book now for sure, though. So we, we should we should do another convo on this for sure. Yeah, this, yeah, we could do a book. We could give ourselves a month or something to read the book and then reconvene. Yeah, I'm totally down for that. Because I would just love to just compare and contrast it like. I, I wish I would have gotten into this a long time ago at this point because so much depth there. But this is what happened with Lord of the Rings. I watched the first Fellowship of the Ring and I was like, I'm hooked. It's all over. And I have since read the books like two, three times. <laughs> so this feels like the same kind of thing that's worth doing. Plus, from at least me and you, Jordan, have talked about this a little bit with C, but I feel like this kind of movie doing as well as it has, especially with COVID, I hope it revitalizes the creativity in Hollywood a little bit to step out of the tried and true method that has been effective for the better part of 10 years. (laughs) And um, we see some new ideas coming forward. Yeah, I think we will. I think this is, I've said this before. I think this is what film, at least personally, this is what film is. This is the perfect idea of what a movie can represent 
and that's Dune. You know what I mean? Just what it's supposed to do. It's fun. It's entertaining. It's beautiful. Dude, this movie was just beautiful. Cinematography wise, the dialogue, you have good actors, talented people. You have all these themes and meanings I didn't even realize. It speaks to us on a much deeper level than like this, the external, or you can see on the surface. It's just all these things put together in a way that it's still enjoyable to watch. And you have, it's a fun time. It's like, holy shit. It's, this is to me, like the pinnacle of cinema in that sense. So it's not so artsy that it's not entertaining, but it's not so entertaining that there's no heart to it. You have all of this like perfectly combined into the spectacle that you're just impressed, (laughs) you know? There's no, I don't, the only thing I wish is maybe there's more scenes of stuff. Take it a half hour more of that film. Right. Yeah. Just give, (laughs) just give me more. That's my like critique of the film. It's, It's just so cool to see it. Plus I think, the, to see sci-fi too that's not done in the traditional way of everything with lasers and like the new version with AI screens and uh, translucent overlays and things like that because it was written so long ago Frank Herbert had no idea what we were going to have in just 30 years <laughs> so he couldn't really lean on that but I think to me to see sci-fi done in a way that it's not just like imagining evolution of computers I think is really fun and it's a very different approach. I agree. So Dune part one, we're done. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Cool.